Let's open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you so much for the time that we have uh, today. We thank you for the the beauty of this day. Uh, But Lord, we we praise and thank you even more so uh, for the beauty of being in relationship with you, of knowing you and and delighting in you, to seeing the beauty of Christ. Lord, I pray that as we uh, open your word this morning and in Sunday school and, and again in worship, that you would open our eyes to see you as you are. That, Lord, you would stir our hearts to worship and and to praise you. Uh, We just thank you and and ask that you would teach us even now. And we pray this uh, in your name. Amen. All right, here's some handouts you guys can, uh, for those that like to to take notes, I I, uh, gave some some handouts there and and just printed just a few things on there that I'm going to make reference to. But other than that, you can take whatever notes you want. Uh, while those are being passed out, are there any questions from last week that, that you had either about the lesson or I know I gave a handout on the PCA denomination and just sort of the formation of that and stuff? Is there any questions? All right. Well, let's just review just a moment if we could. Uh, the first two questions really deal with the requirement for membership. And then the rest of the question really talk about expectations and stuff like that, which we'll get into starting next week. But uh, it's really important that we understand these first two questions. And I know that these are things that you, you probably have, have heard a lot, but I just want to make sure that you understand that. So how, how do you sort of summarize the, the first question? Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope? save or accept through his sovereign mercy how how would you summarize that question what is that what does that entail all right yeah that's a good summary it's only in christ that hope um, we are helpless and hopeless without him yeah exactly so what what would be uh, sort of the the implication of us understanding that as a church? You know, what are, what are things that might characterize us as a church as our people understand that first vow? I put over here in part of the notes is that remembering these things should be a habit, so it would be something that we do constantly because that is an encouragement to worship God and to see ourselves as God sees us. Yeah. Good. What else? Students to love God. Mm-hmm. Well, but, Go ahead. I was going to say, well, but for the grace of God, we're all in the same boat and we're sinners. So whether we're the member of the church or not a member of the church, we're all in need of God's grace yeah. for salvation. Exactly. And, and with that, there's sort of a sense of humility, therefore. Um, so I, I would pray that we would never be this way. I'm sure we'll be tempted to at times. But to, to have a sense of we're better than other people or we've arrived more than, more than other people. Um, there's, there's just sort of that sense of humility uh, with each other, 
but I also hope with people that come in from the outside as well, you know, and, and especially as we have to deal with the sin of other people. I, I heard a person describe one time, uh, at least the process of counseling. In counseling, they said, as you're walking alongside other people and all the gunk and the yuck of their life, uh, some of the, their mud splashes up on you as a counselor. Well, it's sort of like that as Christians, as we love each other and love people, that some of the messiness and the gunk of their life splashes up on us. It inconveniences us, and, and, and it just sometimes interrupts our life, and it can be very frustrating. And, you know, if there's a sense of sort of self-righteousness, we're going to be very upset that people inconvenience us us. But if we truly understand who we are in Christ and the fact that we deserve God's displeasure, then we would gladly walk alongside another sinner because we see that really we're no different. Now, we might think we're different because we might have learned to mask our sin a little bit better. But the reality is deep down inside, when you look at the heart condition, it's exactly the same thing. So there is that sense of humility a sense of also, I think, uh, of reaching out to others as well, um, and 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 those that are in captive to sin, you know, and in, in hopes that they would know the hope that we have only in Jesus Christ. And then, as Sylvia said, there'd be a sense of loving God. I think the way that it would express itself would be in worship, you know, would be in in delighting in who God is and what He has has done for us as well. So, okay, so the the very first thing you see on your sheet is the first question really deals with our predicament, and that is sin and and the sense of a need of repenting from that sin or turning away from that sin. And and I just, I want to say this just because I think sometimes it can be confusing. Repentance means turning away from our sin as a lifestyle. It doesn't mean that we never sin again. Okay, and 1 John's a little confusing because John will say in his first letter constantly, stop sinning, sin no longer. And you can walk away from that thinking, wow, I got I to gotta live a perfect life. Well, what, what it means, and if you look in the Greek, it means stop habitually sinning. Stop living that lifestyle of sin. And it doesn't mean that we'll, we'll always resist sin. We will be tempted and we will give in to that sin. But we'll see that the that the, there's a change in our life and stuff. So anyway, so that's that's our our problem, our predicament. And the second vow now deals with our provision, and that is in Jesus Christ that He is our Savior. And the way the question reads is this: Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest on Him alone? for salvation as he is offered in the gospel okay now this is where i'm just dying as a teacher i just so need a dry erase board i could write on you know it's just it's hard to sit still and teach and not walk around or whatever but i'll do my best but if i were to write this up on the board i I could summarize this in one sentence and that is this that christians have faith in christ's person and work alone that's it that that christians are people who have faith in Christ's person and work alone. Okay, and I want to go through each one of these sections, okay? And I know last week 
We talked about faith, so that's going to be a review, and that's fine. But we're going to look first at faith, then at Christ's person, then at his work, and then what it means then to have faith in Christ alone. Okay? So uh, so the first point we see is, is that all true Christians have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Could somebody read Acts chapter 16? Acts 16, verses 31. Well, just 31. Yeah, Acts 16, 31. Remember, uh, Paul is in prison, and uh, there's this uh, terrible earthquake, and and uh, you know the the jailer thinks that they they all escaped. He's a, uh, about ready to to kill himself, and and Paul says, no, don't do that. And then we come to Acts 13, 1631. And what is he, uh, you know, and what is Paul tell him that he needs to do. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. Okay, that, that word there, believe, is the same word for, for faith. Okay, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, when we're talking about faith, I'm talking here about saving faith, not just faith in general. But I, as we start talking about these things, I, I want to I quote from D.L. Moody. Okay, I appreciate what he said because I think that as Christians, sometimes there's a switch in our brain, especially if you've grown up in the church and you have heard these things your entire life. I think there's a switch in the brain that when we hear something that we've heard before, that switch just like flips off. We're like, oh, yeah, I know that. And we just switch it off like I don't need to hear it anymore. Okay. Okay. But D.L. Moody uh, sort of reminds us, he said, the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. The Bible was given not to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. And so when Satan is tempted to flip that switch and you're tempted just to sort of shut down and say, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. You know, my question is not, do you know this? My question is, do you live this? And if you don't live this perfectly, then you need to listen. So I have to listen all the time whenever scripture is read because I don't live any of it perfectly. And, and it's important for us to do that and to, to seek our heart and say, Lord, help me to hear that I might, might live this out. And so as we're talking about this whole thing of saving faith, the second question uh, really describes it very well. And it uses three words. Look at your the second vow that you give of membership. And what are the words in there that, that he gives to describe saving faith? I'm sorry, what? Yep, rest. Rest upon him. Receive him and believe. Now that's sort of in reverse order, but uh, so believe, receive, and rest, okay? And the first thing, you know, we've already talked about it from Acts 16, 31, believe. Uh, and, you know, Jesus also spoke of that, not just Paul. And actually John talks about believing a lot or having faith a lot in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as John does that, whenever he uses that phrase, believe in, 
he, he really uses that in terms of believing in something like a, a personal relationship. Now, so it's, it's a lot different than when we use that term. We might use that term to say, I believe in something sort of impersonal. Do you believe in ghosts? Yes, I believe in ghosts. No, I don't believe in ghosts, whatever. But for him, it has more of a sense of, of a personal relationship. So when you believe in Christ, it's not just understanding the facts, but it's more of a, a relational dimension to that, okay? Um, but there, there are those that do believe in Christ just in terms of understanding the facts. Think, for example, somebody read James chapter 2, verse 19. And I'm just going to be throwing out these verses, so if you have your phone or your Bible or whatever, you know, just uh, if you get it, just go ahead and read it. James chapter 2, verse 19. James talks about belief, and he says what? You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Okay, so that word there, believe, is also the word for faith. Now, it's not talking about saving faith, but it's just talking about a sense of, of believing that Christ exists. The demons believe, but the, the demons are not going to be saved, you know. So there is a sense in which we can believe in Christ, that, that he exists, that, that we know it's a, it's a true reality. But that's not the same thing as, uh, as, as saving faith. It's not that sense of embracing who Christ is. So that's why the vow also talks about not only believing, but also receiving as well. Um, if, uh, if you look at the back of your sheet, you'll see that I wrote the Shorter Catechism question number 86. Um, and it's talking about what is faith? Okay, and the definition, according to the Shorter Catechism, is faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. Okay, you can sort of see where uh, uh, this membership vow comes from, you know, is from the Shorter Catechism. So this answer entails two things. It's both receiving and, and resting upon Christ. Now, let's look at John chapter 1, if we could. John chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 11 through 13. Yeah, 11 through 13. Okay, so uh, John has just uh, shown that Jesus Christ is the, the Logos. He, he, he is the Word of God. Uh, he, he dwelt with God. He is God. And uh, he's, he's about to say that he has come to earth and dwelt among us. But he says, before he says that, he said, He came to his own, and his own did not what? Receive him. Okay? So God gives this great gift, but those that were his own, his, his people, rejected that gift. And so there's a sense of the, the offer of the gospel, and, and they said, we didn't want it. How sad that is. 
But then John goes on and says in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that sense of believing and receiving being sort of parallel to one another, he gave the right to become children of God. So what does that sense of receiving involve? What does it entail? Accepting that he was God? Trusting. Trusting, I mean, like... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's that sense of, of, of accepting that, you know, of recognizing that God is giving us something, a gift that we don't deserve, and it's a sense of that, sense of, uh, of accepting that gift. But then, like you said, then it goes on, and he talks about that sense of resting, or that sense of trust. Um, you, you see that the sense of trusting isn't just that sense of recognizing that these facts are true, or, or even just accepting that gift. It doesn't just stop there. I mean, if, if I were to uh, give you a brand new house and you go, wow, thank you so much for this house. And I gave you the keys to the house and you're like, wow, that's wonderful. And, and you, you take the, the keys to the house and then you get in your car and you drive back to your apartment. And I'm going, what are you doing? And you're like, well, I'm just going to go back to my apartment and live here. And you're like, yeah, but I just gave you a house. And you're like, yeah, I, I know. I know. You gave me the house. I accepted the keys. I accepted the gift. But you're not taking advantage of the gift. It's not a sense of, of that affecting your life. Well, that's where that sense of resting or that sense of trusting in Christ comes from. Um, it really, uh, let me just read a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, Paul says, we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There's that sense in which we put our hope and our security in Christ. And that's where I used the illustration last week of the chair, you know, and, and uh, especially for the kids. But I find that adults find it helpful, too. You know, that sense of we can say this chair will hold me. And I can say, do you believe that? And you can say, yes. Do you accept that fact? Yes. But you're not really trusting until you sit down. Now, what what most of the kids didn't know and adults is I used to have a chair that was a wooden chair that looked really solid. But actually what you couldn't tell was is that the seat was split down the middle and the rungs were real rickety. So I would take that chair and I have it already sitting up there in front and I'd say, kids, do you believe that this chair will hold me? Yes. Well, am I trusting in this chair? No. So what do I have to do to, to trust in it? And they'd say, you have to sit in it. And I'd sit in it and crash. I would fall to the floor, you know. And, of course, they laughed and they thought that was funny and stuff like that. And I said, but that's oftentimes what we do if we put our faith in the wrong thing, you know, that, that will not hold us. You know, but saving faith is uh, trusting in that which, which we do. So, you know, there is that sense of of having that faith in Christ and, and trusting in him. Um, anyway, any, any questions about that before I sort of move on? Yes, you said 2 Corinthians 1 with that? Oh, 1, 9. Thank you. 2 Corinthians 1, 9. Now, I want to I say one more thing about uh, saving faith, too. Uh, and if you look on the back of your sheet again, where it has a, another quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, paragraph 2. It's actually the very end of the paragraph. There's more to be said than this, but I just took the 
part that pertains to our discussion. Uh, it says, but the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Now, what do we mean by those terms justification, sanctification, and eternal life? What's he talking about there? What our salvation is based on. Yeah, it's what our salvation is based on. Justification is being righteous. It's when we're forgiven of sin and make righteous before God, just in our position. Or sanctification is the constant process that we are being transformed, becoming more like Him, where we are being changed and transformed constantly. We are not... Like justification, we're not under condemnation of sin. Sanctifications, we're not under the control of sin every day because we have the Holy Spirit that can helps us with that. And eternal life is when we're going to be glorified and we're going to be totally out of sin and finally uh, be in heaven. So. Yeah. So you know, justification is sort of what we're talking about when we talked about when we talk about lots of times in the church of being saved. You know, we're being how we made right with God. And, and I, the reason why I sort of pulled this quote out is that saving faith involves more than just coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, when sort of the, uh, the uh, oh, okay, now my mind's going blank, the, the revivals that went through America and just sort of that, that whole sense of revivalism that went through our country in the early days, you know, it left sort of a... Uh, incorrect perspective, I think, of what the Christian life was and the sense that it called for a decision. And, and some even, you know, many churches today will even say, you know, you need to pray a prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you pray that prayer, then you're good. Because it seems like the focus is just you saying, I want to follow Christ. And then if you make that decision, that's sort of the end of it. I'm a Christian and I'm good. Okay? But saving faith involves more than that. It involves walking with Christ not only our entire life here upon this earth, but also then spending eternity with him in heaven. And I say that because I hear people sometimes who say, I prayed a prayer and so I'm good. And it's almost like, you know, they took Jesus, he was offered as a gift, and they said, Wow, that's great. I'm gonna take that gift and I'm gonna set that over here. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live my life. I'm going to do the things that I want to do. And if people say, are you going to go to heaven? They're like, yeah, see that gift over there? That's my gift that I can just present when I get to heaven and then I'm good. And it's like my life here on this earth and that gift have nothing to do with each other. And that's not at all what salvation is. Salvation is that that gift of Christ has been given to me and we're going to talk about this in, in the worship service more, but I went from being dead in my sins to being made alive. I've been given life. It's, it's changed my perspective. It's changed the things that I love and the things that I desire. And, and so then I walk in that newness of life. And so not only is saving faith you know, affecting um, my, how I come to faith in Jesus Christ, but also how I live. 
and also looking forward to how I will spend eternity with God in heaven. That eternal life starts even now here upon this earth. You know, we experience it to a degree, but one day we will experience it completely. You know, right now we're, we're no longer under the condemnation of sin. You know, even though we still wrestle with sin, but one day we won't even wrestle with sin, you know, and it'll be a glorious time. Does that does that make sense? You see the difference? So oftentimes when I when I interview people for membership, I will say, tell me about your faith in Jesus Christ. And it seems like everybody tells me about that point when they were converted. Okay, and I'll say that's great. But what does that have to do with your life now? Tell me how that impacts your life now and how it impacts your life and how you think it's going to impact your life in the future. And if people aren't used to this, they'll look at me and they go, uh, well, uh, and especially young people that are preteen or teenage years, you know, I will ask them that question because I want them, I want to see if their faith is a living faith that affects their life even now or whether it's just something that their parents believe and so they say they believe as well does that make sense so there has to be that sense in which it is now let me just stop here just a second and not to go off on a big tangent but just for those that that may not be familiar um you know we refer to the westminster confession of faith the larger catechism the shorter catechism and if you didn't grow up with that tradition you could say what the heck are you talking about and you know, at the time of the Reformation, um, the, the church populace, the people who were sitting in the pew, the congregation was pretty ignorant. Actually, a lot of the clergy, the people standing up front were pretty ignorant, too, of what the Bible taught. Well, as, as people, as the Reformers began to read the Bible, you know, they realized we need to teach the people what the Bible says. And the people wanted to learn, you know, because the church wasn't teaching them what the Bible said. And so they would come up with these confessions or these statements that were sort of summary statements of what the Bible taught. And, and, it was in, and it wasn't that these summary statements were more important than what the Scripture taught. They actually came from the Scripture. They actually came from the Bible. Okay, but let me just ask you, Calvin, what if I ask you, what is God? Okay, what is God? Just take your Bible and just show me, what is God? You know, or Katie. You know, why don't you take your Bible and just open it up and explain to me uh, sin? You know, and you can do that. It, it might take a while, especially the question about what is God. You're like, okay, well, what's God? Let me go through and, and I, uh, I'll show you that. And so what the Reformers did was they, they had these questions and answers that they would use because that was just a method that they would use. What is God? And they would say, well, God is a spirit, infinite eternal and unchangeable and his being wisdom power holiness justice goodness and truth and you have a summation of what god is or what is sin sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of god in other words sin is any lack of conforming to god's will right or or sinning against or rebelling against god's will that's what sin is Okay, well, they would give those summary statements, but then they would also go and teach from the scripture where they got those statements from. And so 
we as a church use the confessions and creeds just to sort of summarize what the Bible teaches. And it doesn't mean we don't need to go back to the scripture and show where it comes from in the scripture, you know, but it is sometimes helpful to, to use those confessions and creeds. So if you hear us refer to that, it's not that we think that our confessions and creeds are more important than the scripture. It's just we sort of use it as shorthand to sort of teach what the scripture teaches. Now, every church has confessions and creeds. And you will hear some churches say, well, my creed is what? The Bible. Okay, or no creed but Christ. Or you'll hear phrases like that. And that sounds really cool, and it sounds really spiritual. But the reality is, is they view the Bible a certain way. There's certain things they believe about the Bible. And, and it sounds really cool to say, well, I just believe the Bible. But actually, they're interpreting the Bible a certain way. And, so, and, and that's called a creed. Okay, it's just in our church, what we do is we go ahead and we write our creeds down. So everybody can read and see what it is that we actually believe. And some churches, they don't tell you what those creeds are. You just sort of got to be part of the church and figure it out. And you find out that some things, you know, anyway, you find out what's important to them. So anyway, I just want to take a, a moment and not assume that just everybody understood that. Okay, so that's faith. That's really the longest point, just in case you're worried about us getting through the rest of this. The rest goes pretty fast. So we must have faith in Christ as he is offered in the gospel. That means that we need to believe Christ as he is presented in scripture and not according to our own imagination. You know, have you been have you ever talked with people about Christ and you say something about how uh, if you don't have faith in Christ, that, you know, God's punishment will be eternal and we will spend eternity in hell. And maybe somebody who professes to be a Christian will say, well, that may be who your God is, but my God is a God of love. My God is a, my God would never send anybody to hell. Well, the problem with that is that's not the God of Scripture. OK. And what, what we say when we say the statement is I believe in the God of Scripture, not the God of my own imagination. You see, our temptation is to want to take God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and make them over in our image where God says, no, I'm going to make you over in my image, in his image. And so uh, we need to, to make sure that we understand the, the Bible, the, the God of Scripture. So anyway, and, uh, so all true Christians have faith in Jesus Christ. All true Christians also embrace the Bible's teaching about Christ's person um, or the person of Christ. Now, now who is Christ? Uh, let's look at Matthew 16 this time instead of Acts 16. Let's look at Matthew 16, verse 16. Matthew 16, 16. And Jesus is asking his disciples, you know, hey, guys, who do people say that I am? And, and then Peter replies in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, so is the word Christ, is that Jesus' last name? Jesus Christ? What, what does he mean by Christ? First Messiah. I'm sorry, what? First his position as Messiah. Yeah, his position. It's, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah that was promised from the, the Old Testament times. He's the one that would come and save his people. And, and he's also the son of God. Um, look at 
John 20, uh, verses uh, 30 through 31. John 20, 30 through 31. John is writing his letter, and he's bringing it to a close, and he's telling us exactly why it is that he wrote this letter. And this is what he says in verses 30 and 31. Okay, so here again we see that sense in which Christ or Jesus is is the Christ, he is the Son of God. And but if we look at scripture, we also see that he is described as Lord. Let me read uh, from Romans 10, verse 9. And this isn't the only place Jesus talks about himself being Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. We went through that recently. Um, you know, the book of Acts talks about that, other places. But in Romans 10, verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we see that, that Christ is Lord and Messiah, he's that promised deliverer, that ruler, but he is also God himself. Now, what? why is that so important that we believe in who Christ is? You know, that, that he is Lord and Messiah. How, how does that affect your faith? To understand him as Lord. Yeah, exactly. And, and he's the uh, the ruler, so uh, we should be submitting to him. We're not our own ruler. We're not. Uh, we don't get to make the rules uh, decide how we want to live. He decides. Okay. Is that sounds like a pretty awful life, though, to have to submit your will to to someone else? Well. Um, in Matthew, he said, says, uh, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. It's, it's an illusion to think that we're free without submitting our will to Christ. Hmm. We're, our wills are even submitted to sin, which ultimately leads to death and destruction. Or our will is submitted to Christ, which leads us to eternal life. Um, and uh, there's freedom from sin. In yeah. Amen. So Christ makes us alive in him to, to live life. But the reality is, is we still are tempted by, by sin and, and the things of this world, by the devil and, and our flesh. Uh, but Christ uh, rules over us. And so he doesn't just like save us and then just leave us on our own. He actually rules over us and protects us and cares for us. As, as king and ruler. Now, I, I mention this partly because some people, there's sort of the teaching out there, I don't know that I hear about it quite as much, but it is still out there some, that you can receive Jesus Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. And so you can be saved, you can be a child of God, you can be a Christian, but it doesn't really matter how you live your life. You can live your life however you want to. And then maybe later on, then Christ can rule over you. 
The problem with that is, is that nowhere in Scripture do you see that kind of idea. You know, at the point that Christ becomes your Savior, He also becomes your Lord, too. So Jesus as Lord is not something that we accept later on afterwards. Um, Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's move on. Um, I, I want to say to those that are covenant kids here, um, you know, I think this is, like I said earlier, it's really important that you understand this in your own life. One of, the, one of the reasons why, uh, it's not that I don't think that the Lord can't save a child when they're young, but one of the reasons why I like to wait till kids are a little bit older before receiving them into communion membership is because I think as uh, kids growing up in a Christian home, sometimes it's very difficult for uh, you to understand what's truly your faith and what's your parents' faith. I mean, if you had, uh, I mean, how many young people in here, let's just say between the ages of 10 and 20, um, how many of you would have, uh, you know, you were going to come to church today? And just, there was no question in your mind, you were going to come to church today. Yeah, I think I think everybody would probably say you're going to come to church, but but part of that is because you live in a Christian home, right? And so what do you do? You go to church on Sunday morning, you know. But as you get older and you begin to uh, to process those things for yourself, as long as you're living under your parents' roof, probably you're going to come to church. But but even while you're living under your parents' roof, you're sort of processing those things and thinking, is this something that I believe myself, or is this something that just belongs to my parents? And so I think it's really important for you to, to think about Christ as Lord and think to what degree does Christ's life affect my life? You know, and that, do I see that as his lordship? So anyway, okay. Uh, next, all true Christians embrace the Bible's teaching about what Christ came to do. Uh, John 1.21 says... Um, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, so Christ came to be our Savior. He came to um, take away the sins of the world. Would somebody read Galatians 1, 3 through 5? Galatians 1, 3 through 5. you in peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. So, so we see here that Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from, from the present evil age. And so there is a sense in which Christ is, uh, takes away our sins, but also uh, here again, his salvation affects our life as, as well, you know, in terms of our sanctification, our glorification. Um, next, all true Christians recognize that Christ is the only way to salvation. Would somebody read Acts 4.12? 
Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which must be saved. Okay. So there's, there's only one way that, that a person can be saved, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, now that's a very unpopular teaching today, especially uh, it's, it's not very politically correct, I think, to say that, that Jesus is the only way, especially in our pluralistic relativistic culture in which we live, you know, because everybody's, you know, you can say that you believe that Jesus is the only way, but you can only apply that to yourself. But to say that that's universally true of all people, that Christ is the only way, is very offensive in the culture in which we live. And so when you stand up and you say that there's only one way to salvation, you've offended probably about half of the people. When you stand up and say, Jesus is that only way, you've probably offended the other half of the people that you didn't uh, offend the first time. But I think that what's important to remember is, is that when the gospel was preached in the book of Acts and, and so on, that the cultures in which it was preached at was a very pluralistic culture, very much like ours. And, and what happened as a, as a result of the proclamation of the gospel? and the church in a pluralistic culture. What do we see in in the book of Acts? Well, one thing, there was persecution. You know, people didn't always like the fact that uh, that Paul and others preached that Jesus is the only way. You know, so sometimes there was persecution. But the other thing that we see is that the gospel also went forward and lives were changed. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, uh, three, three centuries later after this, you know, uh, that persecution had disappeared and the gospel was being proclaimed. And there were many that had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so... I guess what I'm saying is, is as we, this is a very relevant thing for us. You know, we're going to face a culture that is very much going to be uh, not like the message that we have to, to say that Christ is the only way to God. But we must be faithful to do that. And in doing so, God uses that to, to change the, the culture that is around it lots of times and, and uh, have many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of the hymns that we sing talk about this idea of Christ being the only way. Um, think about the hymn, My hope is built on nothing less. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Uh, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all, all other ground is sinking sand. So Christ is, is the only way. Uh, that there is to, to come to him. And so there must be a sense uh, to, to become a member of Kirk of the Plains that we understand our sin. We understand uh, the predicament that we are in, that we cannot come to faith in God apart from him, but to understand that God has provided everything that we need and that we need to have faith in Christ 
and and uh, understand who he is. And I, I hope this spurs you on uh, to understand and uh, appreciate and to grow in your faith. Um, you know, I, I think that sometimes because of sort of the revivalistic type of mentality in our culture today, you know, their preachers will say, you know, all you got to do is believe in Jesus. You know, believe that he died for your sins and he was raised from the dead and you'll have new life and that's it. But that's not all there is to the Christian faith. You know, that's like uh, putting your toe in the ocean. And we used to live by the ocean. And, you know, here you are putting your toe in the ocean and you're thinking, I'm experiencing the ocean. But, you know, imagine that you look out and you can't even see the other side. This thing is so vast and so magnificent. And then when you step into the water and get waist deep, you realize the power of the ocean. And then when you dive underneath the water and you look and you see the coral and the fish and all the magnificence that's there, you know, that's the way that our salvation is. And so I, I sometimes hear, you know, people say, well, I believe that Christ existed. And then that's where their faith ends. And I just want you to know that if, as you join Kirk of the Plains, it is our desire that you will grow in your faith, that you will see that ocean more for the magnificence that it is uh, to the glory of God. Anyway, any questions about that? All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, so much uh, for the salvation that you have given to us and, Lord, for the wonderful uh, gift that you have given us in Christ. Lord, I, I pray that... Um, that we would hunger and thirst after you, that we would know you uh, as you are. Lord, that we would see ourselves more clearly as we are. And Lord, even as we do, as we see even the depths of our sin, Lord, as we see our bankruptcy, that it would not lead us to despair or, or even worse, to try to seek harder to uh, somehow please you or to appear acceptable in your sight. But I pray, O oh Lord, that we would understand that you have called us to have faith in you, to know you as you are, as, uh, as our Lord, as, as our Messiah, as, as the Son of God, uh, and rest in you alone and the work that, that you have done, not in anything else, uh, we just thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.